give some folks just a little uh, peek behind the curtain uh, for Michael and Us Nation. You know, for the last few months, whenever we would record, Luke would often ask me, how are things? And then I would launch into sort of a long spiel about how bad things were. And, you know, sometimes it would get a little bit dark. And then we would trail off. And then I would say, welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with... Luke Savage. Hi, everyone. It's good to be back. <laughs> uh, first of all, I just want to thank Michael and Us Nation, both our patrons and our free listeners, just for your patience with us and your understanding during a longer than usual delay since the last episode. As many of you know, my father passed away last weekend, and I would just like to thank everyone who sent kind words and well wishes my way, including quite a few on the Patreon page. It really does mean a lot. I'll just give you folks a little bit of context for what's been up with me lately. We've kind of alluded to this in recent episodes, but my partner and I have been in Kitchener for the last two and a half months. We were full-time caregivers for my father, who was in the last stages of cancer. And I'm very proud and very grateful to have had the experience. We made his last weeks much more comfortable. It was already a difficult time for us because my mother passed away from a long-term illness last September, so the ability for us to spend a lot of time together in these last months is one I'll be very grateful for. I will also say a lot of the time, especially in the last month, it was, you know, it was a hellish experience. I'm sure we have people listening who have had similar experiences acting as caregivers for loved ones, so they know what I'm talking about. It's an experience that I don't think I'm fully recovered from just yet, because uh, the days immediately after a parent's death are some of the busiest and most tiring days you will ever have. Uh, I don't particularly enjoy arranging and hosting parties. I find it stressful in the best of times, and holding a funeral is like holding the worst party of all time. You're holding a party for a dead person around their specifications, and you have to take that person's place as host. So it's very tiring. A lot of it was very good, though. My father was a professor at Conestoga College here in Kitchener, so I was grateful to hear from a lot of his students about his impact on their lives. That's a side of him I didn't really see a lot. We had a Catholic funeral mass, and, uh, you know, probably not how I would want to go out, but I do take satisfaction from having given him the send-off that he wanted. I would like to say something briefly about the Catholic Church in this moment. Uh, It's the church I was brought up in. Until this experience, I held no particular opinion on the controversial subject of uh, euthanasia or assisted suicide. Today, I believe, from what I've seen, that the church's opposition to it has caused an unfathomable amount of suffering and unnecessary pain. And I would just encourage anyone who disagrees with me on that to be with someone with terminal cancer in the last week of their lives, and and you will understand better. Uh, I realize, by the way, that that is an absolutely impossible thing to transition out of. Uh, Nevertheless, we are going to do that. 
Yeah, you know, we've been away from the podcast uh, for longer than usual. And, you know, I wasn't exactly sure when, uh, you know, you'd be ready to come back or when you'd want to come back and and pick up doing the show again, or what you'd feel like talking about uh, when you did. But you had something very specific in mind, which is the film we're going to discuss this week. You wanted to talk about Ingmar Bergman's Cries and Whispers, which is a film that hits uh, about as hard as cinema can possibly hit. So, you know, the two of us talked it over, and I think our feeling was that even though, you know, there may be people listening to this who perhaps don't follow either of us on Twitter, you know, kind of listen for the politics and the film stuff, and, you know, aren't uh, aren't as Will and Luke-pilled, per se, as uh, some of the people who contribute on the Patreon, it really did seem like it was going to be impossible to just do a regular episode in which uh, we didn't address this at all. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that you did. And I still feel like I've brought us no closer to transitioning out of it. But there we go. <laughs> Would you mind listening to me for a little while? Only a moment. I just want to tell you that I have made a film for you. Perhaps just for you. I wrote a screenplay about four women who met for a few days in dramatic circumstances. <laughs> I asked four magnificent, wonderful actresses who are my friends to play the four parts. I asked my friend Sven Nyqvist to do the camera work as usual. I asked the rest of my colleagues to come once more to my aid. We found an old manor house in a silent park. For 40 days, we were making a film which we liked. It is called Whispers and Cries. If you ask me whether it is a good or a bad film, I don't know. All I know is that it is a film dear to my heart. That is why I asked you to see it. I want you to like it. Yeah, I was eager to revisit Cries and Whispers because it is one of the least sentimental movies ever made about death. And it depicts illness and death as very ugly things that, for the most part, don't change people or don't bring them together. But it's also a movie about love and how love is sometimes at its most important when it is at its most unbearable. So I was eager to wallow in that movie today. Uh, and also, 91 minutes long. Perfect, <laughs> perfect runtime. Right, so there was a little bit of opportunism uh, as well as uh, the, the heavier reasons you wanted to do this movie. Most movies that are this serious are over three hours long. <laughs> Well, that's true. And something that I really appreciate about Bergman and have always appreciated is how heavy his films manage to be, how impactful they manage to be in so little time. I feel like, you know, he has made longer movies, obviously, you know, Fanny and Alexander, if you watch it, is one of the longest movies ever made. Although really, it's a miniseries, same with Scenes from a Marriage. But, you know, I feel like the average running time of a Bergman film is much more likely to be 90 minutes. And he probably has, you know, just spitballing here, but there's probably at least 15 of them, if not more, that fall into the category of truly great cinema. And most of them are probably between 80 and 100 minutes. This film certainly being one of those hypothetical 15. 
So we've discussed Bergman a few times on this show. We did an episode on his film, The Magician. We also talked about, at some point earlier in the pandemic, I feel like somewhere in the wake of the uh, collapse of the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign and the onset of the global (laughs) pandemic, uh, we talked about Bergman's Winter Light, which I believe is about 80 minutes long. So there you go. And which is probably, I would say, the most overtly political Bergman movie. And even that is only sort of tangentially political. Yeah, and every time we've discussed Bergman, I feel like we have a version of the same discussion, which to some of you may sound uh, like we're kind of straining a little bit to shoehorn him into the, you know, ever expanding uh, Michael and us canon. One of the reasons we discuss Bergman, of course, is just because we like to watch good movies for a change, right? It can't all be a kitschy Al Gore adjacent material. You know, we've been doing this podcast since 2016, for God's sake. But without straining this or, or exaggerating things, I do have some thoughts before we actually discuss Cries and Whispers on what some political implications of uh, Bergman's work might be, or at least might be for me. And I want to share these thoughts before we get into the film, because I think Bergman cinema is rightly, you know, mostly thought about as, you know, kind of spiritual and, and psychic and existential rather than political. I mean, class themes do appear sometimes in his work. They do, they appear in this film, which we'll discuss in a bit. But these aren't exactly political films, even though, as I said, I think there are important political implications to them. But as I was thinking about what the political implications of Bergman's work might be, it occurred to me that on the political left, and this is obviously generalizing quite a bit, so please don't get mad at me. We have a tendency to be, you know, preoccupied primarily with material concerns, right? And that makes sense because those are quite integral to left politics. They're what left politics are in a big way about, building a world in which every person uh, has the necessities of life taken care of, uh, food, housing, leisure time, education, economic security, personal dignity. One of the things that animates my politics more than anything else is the belief that in a just society, every person can take those things for granted and that when every person can take those things for granted every person will have the opportunity to become their fullest self and to flourish obviously you can't become your fullest self when you spend the majority of your waking life doing alienating or boring work or without leisure time, or without all of these other things I just mentioned. There's the famous line in the song Bread and Roses, our lives shall not be sweated from birth until life closes. That's a line I think a lot of people remember, but there's a much more ambiguous and I think complicated line that comes immediately after, right? Hearts starve as well as bodies. And there are a number of ways you can uh, interpret that, either in the context of the song, in which I, I guess it arguably means something quite specific, or more broadly, uh, at which point I think it becomes a lot more uh, uncertain and ambiguous. Anyway, just to continue, I think it's very obviously the case, and this is something we see throughout many of Bergman's films, because he's you know so fond of writing these chamber plays about bourgeois characters, people that are you know reasonably well off. You see in his films that uh, material security and comfort don't actually address. Uh, there's there's all kinds of things about the human condition that they don't really address. What Bergman himself would have called the soul are not addressed by these things in any of his films. Um, you know, there are all these tragedies that we endure, these pains we endure, major and minor as human beings, those are integral to a film like Cries and Whispers. But there are also anxieties and absences and questions that we all grapple with, which aren't really rooted in our material surroundings, right? Having material comfort and security, in a sense, enables us to begin exploring those questions more fully. Um, But that's the beginning of something rather than the end of it. Certainly, there have been strains in past radical thought which have 
seen in the prospect of socialism something more utopian and far-reaching than what I just described in, you know, a society where basic human needs are met. And perhaps it really is the case that transcending the kind of society we live in today would also transform the human soul in ways that, uh, you know, we can't possibly imagine. It would be nice to think so. But having said that, when I think of these various utopian strands in older radical thought that I just alluded to, I see thinking that was itself the product of a much less disenchanted world than the one we live in today. Socialist thought really flourished during the 19th century at a time when genuine religious belief, you know, really deep, fervent, communal religious belief was much more widespread than it is today. And because of that, I think it was possible, in a sense, for socialists and and radicals in the 19th century and in the early 20th century to, in a sense, secularize religious ideas about progress and transcendence. The idea being that the kingdom of heaven could possibly exist in this life and in this world and not just in the afterlife. That was a major theme for Canada's Christian socialists, socialists in Britain as well others who talked about building a new Jerusalem. That was a phrase that was very common. It was something Tommy Douglas used to say, other people who came out of Canada's social gospel tradition. And these people really did believe both that you could build the new Jerusalem and that having done so, it would give birth to a different kind of human being and a different kind of collective existence. To be clear, I think that we can and should try to maintain some version of that horizon, although I think it's much harder to do today than it once was. I think the idea of transcendence, transcendence of something at least, is important to any kind of socialist project. But I also think it's unavoidable that in a prosperous, uh, egalitarian, and perhaps even a classless society, people still wouldn't be forced to confront the kinds of questions that we find throughout Ingmar Bergman's cinema. You know, these questions of being, of disenchantment, all of those things would probably remain. Uh, It's just that we'd be better equipped to explore them. And just to turn back to Bergman uh, before we begin to discuss the film, I guess I'll conclude by saying that perhaps it's not incidental that the 20th century's greatest storyteller of the human soul came from Sweden, a small country resting on the northern tip of the world that arguably came closer to realizing the democratic socialist horizon than any other. The story follows three sisters, Agnes, played by Harriet Anderson, Maria, played by Liv Ullman, and Karen, played by Ingrid Thulin. The action takes place mostly in and around a mansion where Agnes is on her deathbed, with Maria and Karen looking after her, along with her maid, Anna, played by Carrie Silwan. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. Agnes is in the last stages of cancer. She is often heard screaming in pain. Maria and Karen can't do much except look on helplessly during the ordeal, waiting for her to die. We learn more about these sisters through flashbacks. Agnes remembers her mother, who always favored Maria. Both Maria and the mother are played by Lee Volman, by the way. In this flashback, Agnes comes to better understand her mother. The two of them were both lonely and isolated around the mansion, and she realizes that this experience is a bond that they share. Meanwhile, Maria, her husband committed suicide after learning of her affair with a doctor, played by Erlen Josephson, who it turns out is now Agnes's doctor. 
which sparks this flashback. Actually, it was a suicide attempt. And the key scene of this flashback is Maria looking on at her husband with with the dagger sticking out of his torso, him begging her to help him and her not going towards him, her just sort of staring at him. Meanwhile, the most disturbing flashback involves Karen, who's in a failing marriage where she engages in self-mutilation as a gesture of hatred towards him, a, a, a very disturbing scene. I learned from Roger Ebert's review, by the way, that Bergman wrote, I think of the inside of the human soul as a membranous red, and the visual style reflects that. It's all very bright blood reds and bleached whites. There's a way that the stark simplicity of the visual style reflects some of the themes of the movie, I think. There's a way that I think death boils things down to the bare essentials. Something I know about my own father is, and I I think it's this way with a lot of people who die, they become more themselves than they've ever been, which is, you know, often a wonderful thing, often a very frustrating thing. And I think everybody in the scenario becomes more themselves than they've ever been. And there's something, I don't know, there's something about the visual style of this movie that communicates that to me. Right. In his uh, in his book, Images, Bergman talks about the visual style specifically and the color red. He writes, all my films can be thought in black and white except for cries and whispers. In the screenplay, I say that I have thought of the color red as the interior of the soul. When I was a child, I saw the soul of a shadowy dragon, blue as smoke, hovering like an enormous winged creature, half bird, half fish. But inside the dragon, everything was red. Now, one of the the things that's extraordinary about Bergman, and I think makes him somewhat unique as an artist, especially uh, as an artist who deals in themes of such gravity in most of his work, uh, is that he's incredibly open to talking about his artistic process. I think it's remarkable when you read through his diaries, when you watch interviews with him, when you read through a book like Images, which has essays on a lot of his key films where he's reflecting on them. It's really striking how little he mystifies either the films or the creative process behind them. He tells you exactly where they came from. And this is true of Cries and Whispers as well. He begins the chapter on it in Images by telling us the exact origin of Cries and Whispers. He writes, The first image kept coming back over and over. The room draped all in red with women clad in white. That's the way it is. Images obstinately resurface without my knowledge what they want with me. Then they disappear only to come back looking exactly the same. Four women dressed in white in a big red room. They came and went, whispered to one another, and were utterly secretive. At the time, my mind was on other matters, but since the images kept coming back to me so insistently, I understood that they wanted something from me. So this image popped into Bergman's head when he was working on a film called The Touch, which is a Bergman film I have not seen, uh, which he does not see. I I have. I have. Can I just say, because I'm really proud of this, I saw this movie with Elliot Gould in attendance. (laughs) (laughs) So Bergman, I don't know how Elliot Gould felt about it, but Bergman uh, is not enthusiastic about it. And B.B. Anderson, a longtime Bergman collaborator, did not want to be in the movie, and he somehow talked her into it anyway, and I don't... Don't think she was very happy about it. She didn't feel she was right for the part, um, though it sounds like the movie was pretty bad. So perhaps no one would have been. I saw the Safdie brothers interview Elliot Gould on stage about 10 years ago at uh, Lincoln Center, and it was a disastrous Q&A because um, 
their their angle on it was that Elliot Gould in that film was an example of a new kind of Jewish masculinity that emerged in movies in the 1970s. And Elliot Gould could not understand this at all. He said, what? The character I played is totally unsympathetic. Why do you think that this is some example of masculinity? <laughs> so there was great tension in the Q&A that eventually turned into the audience almost revolting. Um, what I also remember about it was Elliot Gould was so adulatory of Bergman and spoke so highly of his experience with Bergman's whole crew. It was clearly one of the great artistic experiences of his life. And then he sheepishly said, you know, I, I think Bergman was quoted as saying some negative things about me, but I don't believe it because he was so wonderful to me. And the negative things appear in Bergman's autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and so speaking of Bergman's autobiography, which I've read from on the show before, uh, his wonderful autobiography, The Magic Lantern, I found something in there, which I think is also an important part of the origin story of Cries and Whispers. There's a passage in which he describes being a very small child, this very strange scene that unfolded when he was a small child, when he was shut inside the mortuary at Sophia Hemet, which was a royal hospital. Uh, So he was on the grounds of this hospital as a small child. And he describes finding a girl who was there uh, being treated and being a very small child for whatever reason. He touched her shoulder and and he said, I had heard about the chill of death, but the girl's skin was not cold, but hot. He goes on to talk about how this event in his life stuck with him, and he tried to uh, recall it a number of times, but never quite succeeded. It's alluded to in the famous first eight minutes of uh, Persona, possibly my favorite Bergman film, incidentally. He tries to allude to it in Hour of the Wolf, um, but then he, he cut the scene. I'm not sure if what was cut exists anywhere. But it finally finds its way into Cries and Whispers. As Emma Wilson, a professor of French literature at Cambridge, who writes the accompanying essay in the Criterion version of this film, uh, as she puts it, Cries and Whispers seems to hold the feelings of an unreal clinical encounter with a body, youthful erotic laid out between living and dying. It is steeped with fear and wonder. And then she quotes Bergman again from his book Images when he says, I believe that the film or whatever it is consists of this poem. A human being dies, but as in a nightmare, gets stuck halfway through and pleads for tenderness, mercy, deliverance. So as with a lot of Bergman's films, uh, he tells us exactly where this one comes from. And with that, I think we can probably begin to talk about the film itself in a little more detail. It's funny. It's a it's a tricky film, I think, to tease the subtext out of because so much of it is right there. The emotions of the movie are so obvious. As you say, the themes of the film are kind of right out there in the open. But Cries and Whispers, I think, is nonetheless very subtle. I've seen it uh, several times, probably four or five times now. There are always things I don't remember or new things that I pick up on. It's a very intimate character study, and the characters themselves are very layered. I'm still not exactly sure if I know what to think about Liv Ullman's character, Maria, in particular. But it should be said that the film also has a very tight and very neat uh, structure that it's very easy to delineate. I think Bergman himself alludes to this in images. It's analogous in some ways to a piece of music. There's kind of an opening uh, movement. And then there are three themes in the form of these flashbacks, each built around a different character. And then there's a kind of uh, finale and an epilogue. Within this structure, there is one scene that's, you know, quite anomalous vis-a-vis the rest of the film, which is worth discussing. But let's go through the film a little bit and discuss these kind of various movements. Right away in Cries and Whispers, you know you're watching a Bergman film, because the very first thing you see is this very serene series of shots of the grounds outside this mansion where the film takes place. Sunbeams are piercing through the trees, birds are chirping, it's all quite blissful, uh, and then suddenly it cuts to the sound of a clock ticking. 
So probably about as Bergman-esque an opening for a film as there could possibly be. It really is a character study. Uh, so perhaps the best way into this is to talk about uh, the characters a bit. You mentioned that you don't really know what to make of the characters. I, I am particularly interested to hear what you think of the Liv Ullman character, because I think she's the most opaque, who your sympathies are the most confused on. There's a scene between her and Karen where she begs for a reconciliation between the two of them. Karen has so many defense and she finally breaks through them and then in the penultimate scene this is a spoiler by the way uh <laughs> which is ridiculous to say but whatever maria does one of the cruelest things she could do which is to uh, reject her to pretend that she never made that offer pretend that the reconciliation never happened we also know that she was the favorite of the three girls yeah and she's an especially important character because bergman takes extra pains to kind of emphasize her importance you know the fact that the mother is also played by Liv Ullman underlines it and you know maria is i think a bit unusual for for a character portrayed by Liv Ullman. I've actually had the privilege of uh, seeing Liv Ullman speak and introduce a Bergman film in real life, and she's very soft-spoken and has a very gentle presence. I think that's true in a lot of uh, her famous roles as well. It's not really true in this film. She seems to smirk a lot. She seems to have a, a streak of cruelty. The film hints very strongly that, as you said, she was kind of the favorite daughter growing up. She was the most beautiful one, and so she kind of got her way with everything. There's a very strange scene in which you know she seduces the doctor. This is in her flashback scene. There's a doctor who's come to visit because their child is ill, and she comes on to him very strongly. She offers to make him dinner. She starts talking about how my husband is away, my sisters are away, you know, anyone special in your life, that kind of thing. He ends up retiring to his bedroom, but then uh, she follows him up. And there's this very peculiar scene where he's clearly attracted to her, but he asks her to step in front of a mirror and he proceeds to talk about uh, how he sees all these changes that have come over her, how there was an openness to her that seems to have disappeared and you do get the sense, even though he's obviously not an objective uh, narrator of her character, that some version of that is clearly true. It's distinctly possible that Liv Ullman's character Maria used to be a more sympathetic kind of figure. I think that really comes through in the epilogue, which we'll talk about in a bit. But I think it's also important to note that so many of the details of these characters and what we know about them is muddied and made murky by the sense of time and of, of, of temporality in the movie. It's not always clear how long ago these flashbacks happened exactly. But what we do know is that Agnes, the sister who's ill and who's dying, has been ill for about 12 years. So this has been an incredibly long-term thing for the family. It's been kind of the central trauma in their life for over a decade, and it's clearly affected all of them. And perhaps in a sense, paraphrase something you said earlier, you know, maybe it's changed them, but also in a sense, maybe it's made them all more themselves. Maybe it's brought out certain qualities that weren't as visible before. And in the case of Maria, Liv Ullman's character, those seem to be qualities of kind of cruelness and superiority, which really come through in her facial expressions throughout the movie, which are not expressions that I would typically associate with any character played by Liv Ullman. Bergman is famously interested in the human face. I believe he famously <laughs> called it the window into the soul, did he not? And and it's an interesting choice by him and a counterintuitive choice to cast Liv Ullman, who has not just a classically beautiful, but also a very, I think, open and relaxed face in this less sympathetic role. And to cast Ingrid Thulin, whose face is more severe and sharper, 
as Karen. Karen's defenses are up all the time. She's a less immediately ingratiating character. And Bergman seems to know that because Maria has always had her way, uh, she can afford to rest her face like that. Yeah, we don't get as much of a sense of Karine's character, I think. We learn in her flashback, and by the way, the thing that's probably most famous about this film are the cues that appear uh, when these flashbacks begin, where you see a character's face, and then you hear indecipherable voices whispering from all directions, and the screen fades in and out of the color red. So when this happens for uh, Ingrid Tuline's character, you know, all we really learn, it seems to me, is that, you know, she's in a loveless marriage with a man who's a lot older. He's some kind of diplomat. They don't seem to have any children. You know, he's very bored and distant. We hear say at one point, it's a tissue of lies, all of it. All we really know about her is that she's really profoundly and deeply unhappy, which comes through in what's arguably the most uh, unpleasant scene of the movie, which, uh, which you already talked about. Now, the anomalous scene that I mentioned is this one where Maria and Karine appear to have some kind of reconciliation. It's it's remarkable how this scene is filmed, because when the apparent breakthrough finally happens, you know, Maria is saying, I want us to be friends. Why can't we be friends? When the breakthrough finally happens, all we hear is the sound of a cello. And we can see that they're saying things to each other and that some kind of invisible barrier between them has been broken. But we really have no idea what they're saying to each other. And then, of course, the next day, it seems like whatever barrier they broke has somehow reintroduced itself, and it's not exactly clear why. If you have an entirely unsympathetic reading of Maria, I guess you might conclude that her entreaties were never uh, honest to begin with. They were never genuine. But I think there are other possibilities than that. Now, as I said, the film is quite pristine in its structure. And something I noticed this time that I don't think I'd ever noticed before is that Agnes dies at precisely the midpoint of the film. You know, it's a 91-minute movie, and the event occurs, you know, at the 46 or 47-minute mark. We learn a lot about Agnes through her diaries and through flashbacks. We hear her reading from her diaries, and in one scene, we even see her writing in it. You get the sense that, fittingly enough, uh, Agnes, who I guess is the youngest sister, I think that's probably fair to conclude, and who has been suffering uh, from this absolutely horrible illness for such a long time, is really the best of the sisters. There's an absolutely remarkable scene, which I'd completely forgotten about, where after she dies, uh, the priest comes and he starts reading what appears to be this very kind of rote and and paint-by-the-numbers series of Catholic funeral rites. His expression is incredibly severe, and you think that he's kind of going to be like some of the other people that have come in and out of the house, where, you know, he's really just there to do a job, and his heart's not really in it, and he's just going to go move on and do something else. Uh, but then when he finishes, and like I said, I, I, didn't, I hadn't remembered this at all, he turns to the family, and he says, uh, she was my confirmation child. Uh, we talked many times over the years. And her faith was stronger than mine. Um, And you realize he's actually, the reason his expression has been so stern is because he's been incredibly affected by her death. It's a remarkable scene, and it's just one of the things Bergman does to, I think, impress upon us that Agnes, who is the least fortunate of any of the characters in the film, is also uh, the best of them. Although arguably the best character in the film is Anna, the maid, who is also Agnes's lover for an amount of time that is unclear. It may have been for years, it may have just been in the last stages of cancer but she's very much the most selfless of agnes's three caregivers and the least privileged right and agnes is really the only one who uh, treats her like a human being I mean, one of the most incredible things in this film is that, you know, as Maria and Karin 
kind of wallow in their own tragedy and in their own pain. They're completely indifferent to Anna, the maid, who we see they repeatedly kind of uh, dismiss and brush off. There's some really awful scenes towards the end when they're talking about, you know, the funeral and kind of planning for the days ahead. And it's clear that they're just going to dismiss Anna. Karen very coldly says, you know, what are we going to do with her? I guess we'll give her a few, we'll give her notice and a few weeks extra pay. You know, she can take a, I think the phrase she uses is a little article of uh, Agnes's as a as a souvenir because they were so close towards the end uh, and then she starts complaining about how you know because of this closeness Anna the servant has gotten too familiar with them all it's such a dysfunctional family but there's also great resentment towards someone who actually came into the family it's like this family may be shit but it's ours and you're not part of it also just a very transparent class chauvinism to someone that they regard as just a lesser human being you know she may live here but you know this isn't her house now anna does have her own flashback although i think its status is a little more ambiguous than the flashbacks for the other three main characters when the film takes us into maria and karin's pasts i think we can safely assume that what we see is pretty much objective reality you know it's what happened uh, particularly because there's a there's a narration which is actually narrated by Bergman himself. This is not true of Anna's section. There's no narration here, and quickly everything uh, starts to feel very dreamlike. You know, she's kind of walking around the house. It's not really clear what time of day uh, or night it is. She sees Maria. She sees Karen. You know, she waves her hand in front of their faces. They don't really seem to react uh, or don't react much. They don't speak. She goes into the bedroom where Agnes is. Agnes is clearly dead, but also uh, is able to speak. It's at this point uh, she asks to see each of her sisters. Both of them react very differently. Karen is very cold. She effectively conveys that she never had any affection for her sister anyway and walks out of the room. Maria, on the other hand, expresses fondness, but when her sister tries to draw her close, she also can't handle uh, the intimacy of the and flees from the room. She flashes that smirk that you were mentioning earlier. And what's so incredible about this scene is that it's begun as something that's really attached to Anna, the maid, the servant. But really, I think uh, you can also read it as an extension of Agnes, even though she's dead. You know, we hear her complain that uh, she can't sleep. And when Anna tells her this is just a dream, she says, well, it may be a dream to you, but it's not a dream to me, which I think is, for me anyway, one of the most uh, memorable lines in the film. It's after this that we get to uh, the epilogue. This is immediately after the funeral has happened. And all of the husbands are sitting around kind of uh, sounding extremely bored and like they just want to get on with things. I think the scene isn't just procedural. I think there are some important things to be drawn from this, too. I think it's one of the moments in the film where you get a sense of how patriarchal all of these marriages actually are. <laughs> it's clear that the the husbands are all really in charge, that they're all very domineering. You know, this should be a very uh, important moment, a very significant moment for the whole family, but they really are just keen to get on with things, you know, keen to dismiss Anna the maid, get her on her way. And in fact, she does go without severance pay. They all kind of go up to her, uh, you know, one after the other and say a very cold and formulaic thank you. Maria goes over to her husband who opens his wallet uh, and gives her some cash to send her on her way, which about sums up how all of the characters in this film, uh, apart from Agnes, treat Anna. But so we then get to the finale of the movie, which is, I think, after all of it, uh, the happiest part in the movie, perhaps the only part that is uncomplicated by tragedy or pain. Now, if this film were in English, uh, we just drop this monologue in. But since it's not, uh, I think I'll just read it. The last thing we see in the movie is Anna reading from Agnes's journal. 
the reading is accompanied by a flashback where for the only time in the movie we're able to see Agnes when she was healthy enough to get up and walk around and this is how the film ends. Wednesday, the 3rd of September, a chill in the air tells of autumn's approach, but the days are still lovely and mild. My sisters, Karen and Maria, have come to see me. It's wonderful to be together again, like in the old days. I'm feeling much better. We were even able to take a stroll together. It was a wonderful experience, especially for me, since I haven't been outdoors for so long. We suddenly began to laugh and run toward the old swing that we hadn't used since we were children. We sat in it like three good little sisters and Anna pushed us, slowly and gently. All my aches and pains were gone. The people I'm most fond of in all the world were with me. I could hear them chatting around me. I could feel the presence of their bodies, the warmth of their hands. I wanted to cling to that moment, and I thought, Come what may, this is happiness. I cannot wish for anything better. Now for a few minutes, I can experience perfection. And I feel profoundly grateful to my life, which gives me so much. (laughs) Do we need to uh, say anything about that? One of the things I appreciate about this movie is just its merciless and unsentimental depiction of a dysfunctional family. I'm an only child, but I know how common it is for siblings to feel competitive and resentful. And I also know that if you have a family where the parents didn't love all the kids equally, which is more common than you might think, it really does plant toxic soil. And, you know, if there's dysfunction that lasts for decades, it's highly unrealistic to expect that it will just be resolved with the simple deathbed reconciliation. But something I like so much about that last scene is that I think I think all families, even dysfunctional families, have those moments of tenderness and they have those those idealized moments. Sometimes they have even particular eras of their lives that they look back on and think, why couldn't it have always been that? Um, and it casts the movie in a whole other light. I think I have a similar but perhaps a slightly different reading of, of that final scene or of, or of its implications, at least. Every time I watch Cries and Whispers, I find this scene incredibly moving. And what strikes me about it is that I think it forces you to re-examine everything you've seen in the movie up until then. Again, it's not exactly clear when these events have taken place. They could really have taken place at any point, uh, as far as I can tell, in the course of Agnes's illness. You know, was this six months before the events of the movie, uh, before the main timeline of the movie takes place? Uh, Was it six years before? Was it 10 years ago? You're not really sure. And in a sense, I think it could really have happened at any time and that it's probably reasonable to conclude that versions of it have actually happened throughout. The film, after all, really only shows us the final days of, of her illness. And because of that, I think the final scene really invites us to re-examine some of these characters and to think about the extent to which they may be a lot more and there may be a lot more to them than all the pain and unpleasantness the film has shown us. It's why, uh, even though Cries and Whispers is a very heavy film, and in a certain sense, you know, obviously it's a sad one, I've never really come away feeling sad from it. I feel like if there's a thesis to this final scene and to the movie in general, it's that this family can really be defined by both of these things. It's not just that they've spent most of their lives in pain and unpleasantness and that there have been these occasional moments of fleeting happiness or something like that. It's that pain and happiness and everything in between them have coexisted and often overlapped in very kind of confusing and contradictory ways. You know, I want that to be the case, but do you feel that the final moments of Agnes's life are in some sense the final moments of this family? And in the last month or so, the family has shown who they really are. They've shown what their relationship really is. And ultimately, the scales tip on a very unpleasant side. 
when I see that final scene, I think how tragic it could have been this. It could have been this, but it wasn't. Well, I guess I agree with that, but I'd return to the kind of deliberately mangled uh, temporality of the film, where it's not always quite clear when events are happening or when they're happening in relation to one another. I think some of the dialogue even speaks to this. There's a part where Liv Ullman's character, Maria, is telling her sister, and even the tense uh, strikes me. She says, I wander around our childhood home where all is at once strange but familiar and a great event is in store for us. So she's kind of a to something that's happened in the past, but she's also speaking in the present tense. So I think while I agree that there's clearly going to be no salvation for this family, I mean, these two surviving sisters are not going to restore any kind of bond. But in the smashing together of past and present in this film, I think for me anyway, there's still the flicker of something quite hopeful. <laughs> 